Hello everyone, Dr. Anna Kabeca here. Super excited to be with you on Couch Talk today because I have a special guest and longtime friend, Dr. Rita Marie Lascalzo. And we're going to talk to you about really life-saving changes, life-saving information, life-saving inspiration that will really take you into the best of health for the new year and the rest of your life. So super excited to bring with you an expert, Dr. Rita Marie Lascalzo. So let me tell you a little bit about her, but first I want to tell you that she is the first newsletter, her newsletter, she's been in this space for a couple decades now, and she's actually the first person I ever subscribed to on a <laughs> newsletter, if you can imagine, and I still subscribe to her newsletter. So for um, years now, I've been watching her work and learning from her, and we've become friends and interacted, and I recently spoke at one of her events called Shine, where she really helps health educators understand the holistic aspects and integrative aspects and functional medicine aspects that help you get better and to further coach along individuals in this space as well. So she runs that program. She's a licensed chiropractor. She's been an educator in the field for, again, decades and a leader in integrative and functional nutrition and actually um, functional endocrinology and nutrition as that pertains to inspiring and repairing the damage that our lifestyle and food and environment can have on us. So she currently is leading a program called The Sweet Spot Solution, which is launching now currently for educating individuals on five key ways that we can improve our insulin sensitivity and really defray the problematic issues that come from sugar and how it creeps into our stuff. So we're going to have this really dynamic conversation again with one of my favorite people in the health space and let alone a very good friend and mentor to me as well, Dr. Rita Marie. So Rita Marie, it is so beautiful to have you here today. So grateful to be here. And I just, uh, the, the admiration is goes the other way as well. I just love what you're doing. And I love every time we have an opportunity to geek out like this and share and change lives. So thanks for having me. Well, my pleasure. My pleasure. Now tell me a little bit, like tell our audience a little bit about how you've evolved and really now the focus of your um, practice. Yeah. So, you know, I, long ago and far away, I was addicted to sugar and I was on a, you know, standard American diet and lots and lots of stress and my body broke down. And I always say I'm really fortunate that my body broke down when I was 25 instead of 45 or 55, because at 25, there wasn't that much time for me to completely break down. So I was able to turn things around at an early age and now experience amazing health at the age that I'm at now. Um, so that, and, and, you know, I evolved, I said, this shouldn't be this hard to get your health back. And I went into functional medicine and got my degrees and all that and started practicing. But along the way, I started realizing how many people were suffering from this silent killer, this insulin resistance, and they didn't even know it because medically they're not looking at it until it becomes too far along and too close to diabetes. And then they say you have 
you have prediabetes. And what I discovered was that there's a, it's a walking time bomb, literally, that people are walking around with what I call pre-insulin resistance or subclinical insulin resistance, that they're, they're having lots and lots of glucose spikes and peaks, and that's creating a, a stress on their insulin receptors, and they're having lots of high levels of insulin, which can be damaging. And eventually that leads to very high levels of blood sugar all the time, which becomes diabetes. But it's more than just that. And so I watched family members die from what I believe now was undiagnosed insulin resistance. I watched my mom and my dad drop dead suddenly in their 50s and early 60s of heart attacks that nobody understood why. But when you looked at them from our perspective, we looked at them and, you know, they had the extra belly fat, they were tired, they were drinking the coffee all day to keep themselves away. They had all the early warning signs, but for them, nobody caught it when it was early warning signs and intervened with functional medicine and nutritional approaches. Their first sign of heart disease was death. And quite frankly, for 50% of people with heart disease, that's their first sign because nobody's really looking at all those things that lead up to it. So those were my parents. But then about, uh, I would say, 10, maybe 15 years later, my younger sister was diagnosed with lymphoma, and she died within three months, and say, well, well, what does that have to do with insulin resistance? She was morbidly obese. She did not eat any fresh food. She was constantly complaining about the fatigue and the memory stuff and the brain stuff and all the chronic illness things that we know are associated with that problem. And just by looking at her, you would know that she had an insulin problem because anybody that's obese in general has a problem with insulin receptors and with blood sugar balance. And nobody caught it early enough when she was going to the doctor saying, I'm tired. Oh, here, take this. Oh, I'm having this, you know, cold or flu here. Take that. I'm having these headaches. Oh, do this. And nobody really took it seriously and went in to try to find the root. And as a result, she developed a deadly disease and was dead within three months of diagnosis. That disease didn't start three months before she died. That disease didn't start when she was diagnosed. It started years and maybe even a decade or so or more before that with the chronic overload of insulin and blood sugar imbalance. So I'm so passionate about this. And on top of that, when I look at my patients, right, I, I have them start to measure their own glucose and we monitor their food intake and their lifestyle based on what we see. And the results I see are phenomenal, like people on thyroid medication for 50 years who suddenly don't need it anymore. Their Hashimoto's is gone. Their pituitary issues are gone. Everything goes away when they address the underlying cause. So am I passionate about this? You bet. I know, and I love that about you because that's exactly right. And I think that that silent killer, the inflammation piece of it, right? That that tie-in, right? We've seen how Time Magazine, because I can remember the cover of Time Magazine, inflammation, the silent killer. We need to connect the dots between elevated blood sugar and inflammation, right? Because as yeah. medicine, we're constantly getting to the root cause, but even then beyond that, the underlying, underlying cause. Yes. As we dig deeper. Let's talk about, let's talk about how sugar is the culprit, first of all, to kind of just bring our awareness, because it's not just sugar, it's artificial sweeteners and it's hidden. It's the hidden, yes, the secret sugars, the hidden sugars that are just it's hiding away in just about everything we eat, including, you know, tomato sauce and um, 
things you would never expect salad dressings. I go to Whole Foods and I want to buy a salad. Oh, a nice cucumber salad. Ah, sugar is in the ingredients. Like, why do we need sugar in a salad dressing? Come on, right? There's so many amazing savory spices that actually are therapeutically beneficial to the body. Why do we want to put sugar in there? Well, why do we want to put sugar in there is because the food industry knows that there's this bliss spot. There's this spot that when we get a certain level of sugar in the food, we just want more, we just want more, we just want more, which is causing our obesity epidemic, our disease epidemic, and it's causing the food industry to make a lot of money selling more and more of these foods. So sugar is essential for life. Like It's like we say cholesterol is a culprit. No, it's not. It's, it's the, the balance in the body that's the culprit, the imbalance. Sugar is essential. Glucose is what feeds and fuels the cells. So we eat food, it gets broken down. One of the components is glucose, carbohydrates. So we break it down to fat, carbohydrates, and, and um, protein. And we break it down to its tiny little building blocks. So the tiny building blocks of carbohydrate is sugar. And the glucose gets into the system. Well, it's intended to come in with this big package that the food comes with like a vegetable broccoli broccoli has sugar in it believe it or not people don't get that it does but it also has all this fiber and it also has all these phytonutrients and it causes a slow drip of that sugar break it all down use all those nutrients slow drip of the sugar into the bloodstream the pancreas says oh sugar yay we get to feed our cells here insulin take that sugar and bring it into the cells so that the mitochondria can make energy. And so that's what's supposed to happen. But then we've got this refined sugar. We put a teaspoon of sugar in our tea. We drink uh, soft drinks, which are completely full of sugar. We drink the fruit juices, even the organic fresh pressed fruit juices without the fiber. It's a huge flood of sugar that gets into the system right away. And so the pancreas is like, okay, more insulin, more insulin, more insulin. It's just getting worn out, producing more insulin. The insulin gets out there and the cells are going, uh, uh, enough's enough. I can't take any more of this. And they get resistant and the insulin and the sugar can actually damage the receptors. And a lot of other components in that processed food, like the hydrogenated fats, the oxidized heated fats that are cause free radical damage and inflame and, and a mess up. And then there's the adrenals and there's a whole bunch of other things that play in. But the bottom line is we get these damaged insulin receptors that can no longer see it. And so we eat food and the sugar in the blood goes higher and higher and higher and the insulin levels go higher and higher and higher and then nothing gets into the cell. So <sighs> exhausted, right? Eat a meal and you're exhausted. Right, absolutely. I mean, you've said a ton of information. You said you shared a ton of information right there in that um, beautiful description of what we're doing when we're eating something that has, you know, sugar in it, that pure sugar versus part of the package of how it's meant to be consumed with the phytonutrients, with the fiber, because then your net glucose load is much less. Plus you're getting that inf other information associated with the food that is meant to, as it gets broken down into the nutrients we need that then get fed into the Krebs cycle to make energy we, you know, we're able to detoxify, metabolize, and not just use, and we're going to make energy, but then we need to remove the byproducts in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. And 
And when we're not, we create this insulin resistance. We can, again, accumulate the insulin resistance and then also um, build up, uh, you know, toxins within the fat cells. So we got that storage mechanism going on. And then too much, talking about too much insulin or too much sugar creating that insulin resistance. Not just too much at one time, because we can have our, you know, this is what I advocate. We can have our periodic binges, Rita Marie, right? We can have our periodic binges. It's, it's the incessant, constant exposure that really is creating the most damage. So let's talk about that too with our timing of meals, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Timing of meals is, is incredibly important. And there's a lot of people out there who are saying for weight loss, we should be eating small, frequent meals. No, 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 no. <laughs> less meals because every time you eat the meal, it starts this whole process up again and there's insulin in the system. Let me tell you a secret about insulin. Insulin is what's called an anabolic hormone. It stores away fat. It doesn't break down fat. So once the insulin elevates above the baseline, fat burning ceases. Insulin also interferes with a wonderful hormone called growth hormone. And you may have heard that in relation to people are getting growth hormone injections to try to help them lose weight. And when glucose, the insulin goes high, growth hormone goes down. They don't coexist at high levels because they do opposite things. And so if, as long as there's glucose perceived in the blood, it's like, well, we don't have to burn fat. We've got plenty of fuel here. It turns that off. So for people who are trying to lose weight, they constantly have this flood of insulin throughout the day. It never goes back to baseline to trigger fat burning. Well, that brings about a beautiful connection point. The connection is that when we are... Um, you know, when we are, in order to build our growth hormone, things that improve insulin sensitivity are key, like high intensity exercises, intermittent fasting, yes. and then of course the good night's sleep. Those three things will build our growth hormone better and more sustainably than pretty much anything else. And exactly. we've seen the wave of growth hormone injections fall almost by the wayside. We're looking at yeah. other things, serms or... Um, but we're looking at some other things to, to improve um, growth hormone, but growth hormone injections because of some adverse effects are falling by the wayside. The best way to grow them is to improve, to increase our growth hormone is to improve insulin sensitivity as yeah. well. So, so a really key thing, and, and you've done this, I did this in my medical practice once I figured out because we weren't, the one thing that I wasn't trained on, especially we in pregnancy, we look at glucose, two-hour glucose challenge tests. So often what happens when a client comes in is they're going to be look at, they're monitoring their fasting glucose levels to say, oh, well, maybe now we need to look at your hemoglobin A1C, and maybe that's all that's being done. But early on, and we know this because in pregnancy, we check a two-hour glucose curve. We want to see at two hours if your glucose is back down to baseline. But what we then start checking is a glucose to insulin to see what it's doing at 30 minutes, one hour, two hours over time. And, and forget about what your two-hour glucose result is. What's your two-hour insulin? Yep. Because if it's still above threshold, we know that you have insulin resistance. And that is where the pregnancy gets complicated, more so than anything else. And that's a really big problem for the baby. And as well as the mama. 
and, and that's huge. So inside of pregnancy, but outside of pregnancy, then evaluating them with normal blood sugars, and maybe a borderline hemoglobin A1C, or maybe normal, but some of those insulin resistance issues like infertility, irregular yep. periods, and looking at the insulin to glucose curve, you know, value under the curve, and saying, whoa, something's off here, which which is incredibly valuable in educating that client, plus healing their issues, including yep. PLS, infertility, irregular cycles, all, you know, all the inflammatory conditions, weight loss resistance yep. that come with it. So Rita Marie, let's talk about what is normal blood sugar, what is normal hemoglobin A1C, yeah. where we really want as functional medicine providers to, to get clients to your optimal. Yeah. You just to, to you know, just to clarify what hemoglobin A1C is kind of it's a it's a it's an average, it's a measure of the average blood glucose over a period of time. And what it really means is what percentage of your red blood cells are coated with sugar. And there's a normal range when the blood sugar is kept in a good range that there should be. Well, in diabetes, they're considering them well controlled if their hemoglobin A1C is around the seven or below. Well, at seven, the average blood glucose is somewhere in the 130 range. And if the average one blood glucose is 130, the peak is way higher. So that's not good considering that fasting blood glucose in a diabetic is considered 120 or higher. So what I like to see for hemoglobin A1C is I like to see people at around five, you know, a little bit above, a little bit below, but really around five. At 5.6, it's considered insulin resistance medically diagnosable, like, oh, you're, on, you're borderline diabetic here. And at 5.6, that average blood glucose is around 120, 119, 120. At um, five, it's right around, you know, 98. That's much healthier that's much healthier to keep your average there. What we're looking at is average and quote unquote normal versus ideal. And in functional medicine, we're looking for ideal. When, are you, when do you have the least risk and the best functioning? And so in, in medicine, they say at 120, you become diabetic. Well, it doesn't mean that all the complications of diabetes start when your fasting blood sugar hits 120. It means they've been going on for years and all that damage is already happening in your body. So when you develop retinal damage and start to go blind or when you develop the peripheral neuropathies, it's not like you started and the day you went above 120, that's been going on for decades. So we want to be able to check that. So I think that the hemoglobin A1C should be a normal part of checking people on an annual basis to see, is it creeping up? And now they don't even test it unless you become diabetic or you're close, then they'll look at it. I think that's criminal. It's a simple test, costs about 30 bucks, and everybody should get it. Everybody should get a baseline of that. So that's one thing. And then sugar, 120. They say between 100 and 120 is insulin resistance. But when you look at the statistics at 90, fasting blood sugar and 90 above, the person in the 90s has a much, much higher risk of heart disease than the person in the 80s. Like it goes up fourfold, the higher up in the 90s you get. So I don't ever want to see people above 90 in terms of their fasting. If it's above 90, then we're working on this as an issue. But the third part you mentioned was what they call the postprandial, after eating that curve. And what they're telling diabetics is as long as your, your two-hour postprandial after eating is 140 or below, you're okay. That's criminal, right? I don't like to see it ever go above 110. 
120 at the outset at the peak at the very highest, which is usually around 45 minutes, maybe half hour for some people, an hour for others. So what you said before about measuring every half hour is critical because that's what people need to be doing to see if they're at risk. And there's a lot of people who their fasting is 85 and their two hour postprandial is maybe 90. And you think, oh, they're fine, but they're going up to 140 in between. That's exactly right. And that's where it gets missed, like the problem in between. But also from, you know, experience and my clinical experience is checking the fasting blood sugar to insulin, the fasting, you know, one hour and two hour blood sugar to insulin postprandial. But even like if, if, you're, if your doctor won't do a um, fasting, um, if your doctor won't do a fasting or two-hour glucose sure. insulin challenge test, at least get your fasting insulin down. And we want that fasting insulin below 15, ideally below 10. Ideally five. below five, ideally actually. Below five. I mean, when you really look at the statistics, three to five is the ideal, you know, below 10. But yeah, they're saying 15. And I think 15, that's already way yeah. up there. Yeah, because if it's anywhere between that, you know, certainly between 10 to 15, you need to do the two-hour glucose to insulin challenge test for sure so and you can do it at home by the way people can do that at home they don't realize that they can do it at home tell us how we can do it at home you buy a little glucose meter which are like 15 to 20 bucks at the local pharmacy and you measure you do the load i don't usually like them to do the load of the sugar syrup that they give i just like to give like what's your highest carb meal that you're going to eat like if every now and then you splurge on you know hershey's kisses or whatever, have that as your challenge meal, right? So you have your challenge meal be the highest carbohydrate meal that's within reason for you. Now that's not going to always catch all the really at the end of it, but if somebody's already on a decent diet, we still want to be able to check. So we check that and then we look at them every, I have them do every 15 minutes and I have them curve it. Now for the, ins for the glucose, it's easy with the meter. For the insulin, it's more challenging. So there's two ways to do that. One is you go to directlabs.com and you order several insulin tests and you go into the lab at points. So I'm feeling like the fast, the before you start the meal and then at about a half an hour and then again at about an hour and a half to two hours would be sufficient. Or it could be just at the beginning an hour and two hours. So you'd have three different times. But what that means is like you do the before and then you have to sit in your car and eat your meal and then you go back in. That's a pain. But there's a company called ZRT, I think it's ZRT Labs, that has an insulin test that you can purchase. And it, you can't do it at home like you can for the glucose where you get the immediate results. You have to prick your finger, put it on a card and send it off. But then you can do your three different measures and send it off and you'll find out what your curve is. So that's a blood spot test that they're doing? It's a blood spot test. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So there's ways to get some good information about that. And ideally yeah. what you want to do with that information is, is to recognize that we've got to make some steps to recreate the insulin sensitivity, but knowing that, and I've had a fasting blood, blood insulin of a client who had, um, all the signs, you know, very PCOS, very polycystic ovarian syndrome characteristics. And she had uh, irregular cycles, was overweight, ovarian cysts. And, um, but the big thing that she was in for me to see me about was the irregular cycles. So part of my workup was to do a fasting glucose insulin. Her fasting 
insulin was 115 y'all. And so imagine how many years this poor girl who was 17, and typically we see this onset around menarche when their periods are starting, and for her it was age 11. So probably for the, you know, years of her life, she'd been struggling with an increasing inflammatory, you know, inflammatory conditions related to this insulin resistance. And again, you know, what is she feeling? She's feeling like she's fat and she's not feminine and she's, you know, sick and she's different. All those things that can weigh on to, especially at the terrible acne, that weigh on to her ego when, in fact, I talked to her, I'm like, this is, you have Pocahontas syndrome. You have, you have Pocahontas genes, actually. So you are designed to be out in nature, not sitting at a, a desk all day, eight hours a day, eating right. processed food. You were designed to eat real whole food, out in nature, a lot of exercise. You're a, and you've got the genes of an athlete. And let's really shift that thinking around from obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease genes, right? What our genes are yeah. negative for to what they really can empower you for, like me to live in the Sahara for six months without food or water and do fine. <laughs> <laughs> have those genes too, right? Absolutely. So I think that's important to recognize. So, so once now we've identified that there's an issue or potentially an issue, and even if there's not, let's talk about really research-based scientific approaches to heal, to create insulin sensitivity at this time, which I want all our listeners. But before I do, it reminds me because our listeners want to know, Rita Marie, how old you are. How old I am. I try to guess earlier this year. before she says it. I turned 60 earlier this year. And what I did for my 60th birthday is I did 62 push-ups. Awesome. That was my goal. On my 60th birthday, I was going to do 60, and I got to 62. And the next day, I did almost 100. So I make a point of doing push-ups almost every day. On your knees? No. Oh, I could do like thousands of them on my oh knees. Oh, my God. Okay, no, I'm jealous. All right. Y'all, we are on a challenge to do 60 push-ups. Like, the just thought of that is just... You know, there's a way to do it. There's a really great way to do it when you do... It will do increase it. insulin sensitivity, too, by the way. Okay. It will super increase your insulin sensitivity, right? So you basically can start out doing as many as you can, full out, and if it's none, five. that's fine. Then you go to your... then you, Five, that's great. But then you go and you finish up with the knees. What you do is, you, if you can only do five, then if your goal, let's just say your goal for the first month is to get to 30. So you do five, but then a few hours later, you come back and do five more a few hours later. So you add the cumulative across the day to be 30. And then you'll find that the next day, you're probably going to be able to go to six or seven. And then, so then you do the same thing and you just keep doing it until you actually get to that goal. So it's not that hard to do. And you can also also do your five and then drop down to your knees to do the rest of the 30. The next day, you'll probably get to seven, then drop down to your knees to do the rest of the 30 and, and on and on. And it works. And that's how I got up to the 100 or, you know, whatever. And that's I didn't awesome. do the 100 all at one. Like I had, what I had to do was pause when I got to like 40 or so. And I just kind of paused in that position, took a couple of breaths and then continued. So I didn't like, like go all the way that's my goal though is to go all the way to 100 oh my gosh that is awesome all right i am inspired by that Rita Marie, for <laughs> sure so um exciting exciting well uh, let's talk about now that how we're going to increase the insulin sensitivity yep. 
Yeah, so I look at five elements. It's a nice number, five elements. It's in Chinese medicine, five elements. But I look at five elements. And, but I, before I start with those five elements, oftentimes what I'll do is help people to just get over the craving piece, which happens when you start to shift your diet. So there's a set of nutrients. And I'll give them this set of nutrients <clears throat> to decrease, to start to increase the sensitivity. And then we have to decrease the load. So we look at the diet from the standpoint of a two-pronged approach, increase the sensitivity and decrease the need for insulin. So I start them with the supplements. I used to start them right away with the diet piece and people go, oh, I'm craving and I'm this and I'm that. And when I started with the nutrients, then that craving was tempered down a little bit and then they went on the, the diet piece. And the diet piece is basically, you know, there's, a, there's the foods that trigger the insulin and you've got to get rid of them. And I create this plan so that I can get them to do a 30 day metabolic reset. And I call it that because in three weeks, it's been proven. There's a lot of research to that effect. In three weeks, you can reverse the insulin sensitivity, but I give them an extra week. <laughs> so I do a 30 day because there might be a spot or two in there that you make a mistake. So we, what we do is we look at at glucose testing, we get people to test and we get to see what their trigger foods are. And then we have a list of foods that regardless of what they do to you are, are problematic. So we take those out. We have them on this great diet, great food, yummy food. We have a 250 page recipe guide, but it, it, we get them on this really great diet, but diet alone won't do it. So you mentioned earlier, the spacing, the timing of meals. And one of the cool things about being hungry and spacing your meals is that you get the stomach to produce a hormone called ghrelin. And ghrelin triggers you to be hungry. And so if you don't like immediately become slave to ghrelin and as soon as it rears its little head, you do something about it, ghrelin says, oh, well, they're not going to give me anything. I might as well go burn some fat. And it triggers growth hormone release. So if you eat immediately upon getting hungry, you're thwarting your body's ability to burn some of that excess fat that you've got stored that we all have stored in various places around our body. So that's one thing is to, to spread the meals out. Now, some people are eating every two hours and claim I can't go longer because I'm feeling, you know, exhausted, lightheaded, et cetera. The interesting thing about that is when I test people that think that their blood sugar is low and they have to eat, it's actually high for many of them. But the, the body is like so desperately trying to get that sugar into the cells and can't. The sugar is way high, but the cellular concentration of glucose is way low. So it's not the blood sugar, it's the cellular concentration that's triggering the brain to say, we need more, we need more, we can't get sugar in, right? And so I like to see people space the meals, ideally between four, four to six hours, six hours being great longer if they can, but most people were starting with people who are eating very frequently. So I say, okay, just increase it by 15 minutes. Feel the hunger. Thank your body for all the great stuff it's doing with the growth hormone and wait 15, 20 minutes if you can. Have some water to maybe, you know, soothe it a little bit. And then if you have to, then you eat. And then I have this thing I call the, um, what is it called? The snack attack strategy. Like if you have to eat, Let's start with the lowest possible glycemic foods and do something to fill. And I have this whole strategy for doing that. And we, we teach that in the program. So we space those meals. And that helps a tremendous amount. So the timing is important. So what you eat is important. The timing is important. You mentioned really earlier on about the, the exercise. That's a huge piece. And I teach those high-intensity bursts of exercise. Who can't exercise for 30 seconds, four times, eight times a day? 
Really? I mean, right? You can't say I don't have enough time to go 30 seconds. And there's all kinds of cool things you do. In one of my videos, um, in the series that I have, this free video series, it teaches and it shows me doing these exercises. And you can use a sack of potatoes and do squats, you know, hold them like this. And it doesn't have to be any fancy equipment. It doesn't have to be anything special. But that high intensity, four to eight times a day, will start to burn fat and improve insulin sensitivity by raising growth hormone levels. So that's three. I'm going I'm to save my most important one for last. You might have thought the food was the most important one, but I'm going to save my most important one for last. The fourth one is sleep. And that was my thing. I started testing myself and realized that I was having these blood sugar spikes and I couldn't understand it. I was eating a pristine diet. I was exercising. I was managing my stress. I was even timing my meals. But what was I not doing that still caused me to have some of these spikes was sleep. And there's tons of research on the fact that even one night of bad sleep in a perfectly normal person creates a temporary insulin resistance. So what about those of us who are chronically pushing the envelope, who are doing, you know, four to six hours of sleep a night over the course of many years, chronic insulin resistance, even in spite of everything else being good. So we teach a lot of strategies for getting a good night's sleep in our program. So those are the four. And that starts in children too. I mean, our children that aren't sleeping, their optimum amount are becoming insulin resistant as well. So our, Absolutely. so it starts at a young age with what they're doing as well. And also noting, again, that was the third factor that increases growth hormone is a good night's sleep. So hence we're tying in That's right. why one of the measures that we do to look at your level of growth hormone is insulin-like growth factor. Yes. So it, it all kind of tying in together and how we are designed to eat. A couple things that we talk about, timing of meals. My audience knows I'm a big advocate of, of keeping a nice, healthy distance between dinner and breakfast, at least 12.5 hours yes. between 15. We know there's a breast protective effect for that. And here are some of the reasons we create this insulin sensitivity, improve our growth, improve our ghrelin, improve our growth hormone, burn our own fat, create some yep. production. All of these things are very, very beneficial. Where it throws us off is when we become acidic versus alkaline. So I definitely want to get back on this topic. Read yep, and, yep. Or um, key areas first, the glucose, glucose testing and determining the trigger foods, um, you know, determining the trigger foods, and then um, the timing of our meals, right, and how to optimize our ghrelin production so that we can burn fat and produce more growth hormone. The third is exercise, and the fourth is sleep. So suspense no longer. Stress. <laughs> Right? Cortisol. What does cortisol do? Cortisol is that hormone that gets produced when you're running away from lions and tigers and bears. And so what do you have to do if, to get away from a lion or tiger or bear? You need a good flood of blood glucose so that you can use that for energy to supply your muscles. Well, most of our stresses don't involve lions, tigers, or bears, and they don't involve physical activity at all. Most of the stress is sitting at the desk and worrying and, you know, just losing it over the, the non-tangible things in life. And that causes that same flood of cortisol, which then goes to storage and usually goes to glycogen or muscle. Actually, cortisol pathways prefer muscle, break down a protein to form new glucose. It's a process called gluconeogenesis. And so now we have these thigh muscles that get burned 
that get burned away, we take the protein there and we turn it into sugar. And then that sugar courses through the blood and it doesn't get absorbed. It doesn't get into the cells because of insulin resistance. And then we have to do something with it. So we trigger fat storage. Oh, let's save this for later. And it gets fat. So if you want your thigh muscles to turn into belly fat, get stressed out all the time, right? So I teach people processes for, yeah, life's inevitable. Out there is inevitable. Stress is inevitable. It's how do you manage it on the inside? And I like to teach people processes for noticing, first of all, that they're in that stress mode and using their breath and using appreciation and using maybe tapping or whatever other techniques we have. There's a lot of them to dissipate that. And one of the things I do too, to dissipate that level of sugar, because it's sitting there, what are you going to do? And I've measured it, by the way. I've measured it. I've gotten upset about something and go, I wonder what my blood sugar is right now. And it's gone up to 150. So I call that the candy bar eating effect of stress. You get all the badness of eating a candy bar without the pleasure of eating the candy bar. Like, not fair, right? So that's the piece that is really gets me. So what I teach people to do is if you find yourself like sitting there stewing over a project your boss just gave you or your kids failing grades or whatever, is to do some exercise. And that's where combining the burst training things with that to burn the sugar that's in your blood. So if you run around the block, walk around the block, do some squats, right? So when you get stressed out, one of the best ways to dissipate the negative effects on your insulin receptors is to do some exercise and the breathing and, you know, get the level of stress down. And that's where I like to use heart mass techniques. Absolutely. And I love heart math technique too. And I know that you teach that in your programs. So I think that's really beautiful um, kind of to do is that incorporating those mini burst exercises throughout our day, especially during breaks. And again, neuroscience research has proven increased effectiveness when you have five to 10 minute breaks on the hour to do some exercise or working standing or walking around and versus the sedentary, uh, you know, like I've been all morning uh, type of activity when we get behind deadlines or whatever it may be. It's just really making, having increased productivity, increased overall health, yes. better circadian patterns when we are up, you know, five to 10 minutes on every hour. So take that opportunity, take up 30 second first. I think we can do that. I think as a, as a couch talk community, we can all incorporate that. And that's a really good reminder too, and an excellent way to handle stress, it which is. will also make us acidic. So again, increasing inflammation. So let's now talk, cause you, you know, many years ago, we're talking about how important it is to check your pH and being at that and, and get out. Mm-hmm. So um, my audience has heard from me a bit, but let's, I want you to share your experience and your um, take on that and how important it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so being in an alkaline, so our, just to, to a little background, they probably already know, but our blood pH maintains within a very narrow range of what, 7.35 to 7.45, which is slightly alkaline. Life creates acidity. Stress creates acid byproducts the body has to then break down, <clears throat> which shifts that. So foods, certain foods create a, a more alkaline, what they call ash, but an alkaline residue. Some create a more acidic residue. 
And the body has to do whatever it can to just maintain 7.35 to 7.45 or you go and you die on either end of that. You know, you get very sick and you die. So it's very important range to keep. So what does it do? It says, well, okay, woo, this new stuff that just came in, this stress or this this herb, not, not herb so much as um, medication or this food. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm going to grab some water. <clears throat> there we go. Um, we'll create a, a threat to that alkalinity. And so it's like, okay, what do we do to buffer it? So we need alkaline byproducts to buffer it. So where do we go? Well, we go to deposits in our body of alkaline minerals. Best one is bone. We have tons of it. So when we threaten that range by eating a lot of acidic foods or getting stressed, the body says, okay, no problem. There's plenty of calcium and magnesium and all kinds of great minerals. I'm just going to pull it out of the bone and I'm going to get it in the blood and we're going to get this maintained. Well, so what's the cost of eating acidic food? What's the cost of eating acidic food or getting stressed out? It's your bone integrity. And that's just part of it. It, it compromises hormones. It compromises the immune system. It compromises everything in the body, your brain function, et cetera. There we go. I had to unmute my video there. It took me a second in my audio. But um, yeah, no, so that's beautiful. And why it's important to check is because we don't know. And we think, oh my gosh, we could be doing everything right, but where is the sabotage coming in? Yeah. So I'm always like, okay, let's get our Nancy Drew on, our, our Hardy Boy, and just kind of investigate the situation and look at our environment, look at our lifestyle, look at our sleep patterns, look at our stressors and all the food sensitivities. That's another yes. one that will be And you're like, oh, well, why aren't I getting alkaline? I think I'm doing everything right. Lo and behold, there's a food sensitivity, inflammatory, uh, something or other that you're eating too. But to know that it's not just about food you know, is really huge. To know that it's not and EMFs even in the environment. Like I think I'm, you know, and you're sleeping in this bed that's close to these wires and your alarm clock's right by the, and that's a, that's a stressor that causes the body to become more acidic. So it's, it's really just pulling apart your life and looking at, where are the factors? Yeah, I'm eating great food. And a lot of people say, I'm eating this great diet and I'm not getting better. What do you think the problem is? What's like, let's just look at that attitude here. Like, that's the problem, right? And so people don't realize that because they get so stressed out trying to do everything right on the food realm that they forget to nourish their emotional and their spiritual pieces. I think that's a beautiful way to close too, is about nourishing our emotional and our spiritual peace and how important that is, Rita Marie. Now let's tell people how they can, you know, what you've got going on right now with your program. And also we're going to direct people to dranacabeca.com forward slash sweet spot to get some free informational videos from you and some information on really what you can do and your family can do. Do this yes. for your family in conquering this issue of the silent killer um, sugar and how that's crept into our lives and what we need to do about it to get really sensitive by one of the lead, world's leading experts in this area and in functional nutrition and functional endocrinology, which is so Thank cool. You. So Rita Marie, tell us more about that and what you're offering. Yeah, I put together a really cool three-part video series, you know, and I just kind of laid it out and each video goes into a little, a different aspect of it. And then we have it in an in-depth deep, deep dive training 
of 90 minutes. So each of the videos are easy to consume in your life, you know, maybe anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes long. And it gives you a chunk. And, and every single one of them gives you an action step that you can do right away to help lower your blood glucose and improve your overall, you know, health and, and well-being. And then we have a 90-minute deep dive training, which I'm really excited about because then I'll get to really lay it out in terms of strategy, like going deep with each of the five elements and give everybody some things that they can walk away with. Um, and then we have a program that people can join if they really need that support ongoing. We have um, a 90-day program for helping you to actually get into your sweet spot. And that sweet spot I define as that spot where the blood sugar is perfectly balanced for you. And it might be slightly different for you than me. I feel great when my blood sugar is around 65. That's when I feel like my brain is functioning the best and I feel most energetic. I love being at 65. Other people go, 65, that's too low for some others. It might be 75 or 85. But that's what the testing allows you to do. And it was through the testing that I determined, holy cow, what do I have to do to keep myself at 65? Because that's when I don't have any hunger. I mean, I'll be hungry, but I don't have cravings. But once it goes like in the 90s or 100s, I'm like, when's my next meal? I want food, right? If I get hungry, I want food. But when I keep it balanced, it's beautiful. So, but everybody's different for that. Right, and it depends on if they're diabetic and they've been in this range for a long time. Maybe 110 is their perfect spot for now. It might get better in the future. But how I want people to find that sweet spot for them when they just feel their best. And the way we do that is that monitoring, like you do with your keto alkaline, like you don't know unless you measure. Don't don't. What do you say? Go, don't guess test. Right. Exactly. With our blood sugar. Yeah, so beautiful. All right. So I want our audience, you know, first of all, just so grateful, Dr. Rena Marie, for your time today and sharing your information. You know, we can, again, you know, talk for hours, which I love you so much for all the information you share generously. So I know that this is an amazing program. I'm excited to share it with my audience. And I also want our audience today, just write a comment below in our Couch Talk, on my Couch Talk page here on Facebook. We're sharing it there as well. And also share this podcast. This is information. Share also the drannacabeca.com forward slash sweet spot and learn from Rita Marie. And just in this 45 minutes that we've had today together, how much have we learned to really clarify it. Rita Marie is an absolute expert educator. She makes it make sense and you can actually implement really amazing strategies that are common sense as well as figuring these things out. So I'm excited to um, be here with you today and um, excited to have all of you part of our um, Couch Talk community, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Reed Marie, for being with us. Thank you for inviting me, Anna. It's been great.